Hey, what's happening, horrorphiles? Welcome back to another episode of Week in Horror, the only podcast that floats down here. This week, we are covering July 5th through July 11th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me as always are Eugene and Alex. What's up, everybody? Hey. All right. So, before we jump into it this week, we got some really, really cool, uh, just a couple of cool things that I recently read about. Um, First and foremost, uh, with the success of the Halloween, uh, not really a reboot, but the Halloween sequel that they made, Blumhouse... There is rumors that they could be tackling Friday the 13th next. What? That's badass. So, like, but some of the best movies come from Blumhouse, so... So, yes, this thing could... It's still a, it's still kind of a rumor, um, but some of the... Uh, but there was a rumor where that they were tackling Halloween. And people were kind of like, what? Are they really? And then all of a sudden we got this, you know, with David Gordon Green and Danny McBride produced by Blumhouse, but it's possible they could be doing this. And there's another kind of rumor that Stephen King wants to dip his toes into the Jason Voorhees uh, mythology. That's going to be like the darkest Friday the 13th like ever. (laughs) (laughs) This could be super wild. Um, And I think as King was talking about doing it from... Because, yeah, we've talked multiple times about how King... Uh, Ju- Stephen King's kind of vision of hell is just, you know, hell is repetition. It's the same thing over and over again. And he kind of wanted to do uh, a, vo- he wants to do a Voorhees story, a Jason Voorhees story, because he can't imagine a worse hell, because in Jason's mind, he's continuously being drowned over and over and over and over again. That he is stuck at the lake, repeating the same things over and over and over again, bound to that lake, never able to leave it. He, he can come out of the water to kill people, but he always goes back. So, and Stephen King was like, I can't imagine a worse hell than what Jason Voorhees goes. I think he was talking about possibly doing a story from, like, Jason's perspective, which would be weird. That would be super weird. Um, and then, of course, yeah, with the idea that Blumhouse might be tackling it as well, if they could do it as well as they tackle Friday the 13th, that would be pretty badass. So, uh, but that's a rumor going around. Um, yeah, any of our listeners, if you have thoughts on that, or if you or if you hear something else, hit us up at weekendhorror at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, um... Something cool that I wanted to do before we jump on the movies is right now so many people are quarantined. So many people are either furloughed, they're work furloughed, or they're stuck in their homes. Or even those who unfortunately have gotten sick, um, who you know, maybe your symptoms are light but you can't go into work. You're stuck in the house. And so when we're stuck in the house, Alex, what do we do when we're stuck in the house? Mass. Watch a lot of movies. We binge watch shit. Watch yes, all we of fucking the <laughs> We're gonna watch the internet, all of it. <laughs> I will complete so, the internet. Um, <laughs> so, what I wanted us to do uh, for our listeners is we went, we went, and we jumped in Netflix, and we each found a couple of little hidden gems that were either under uh, marketed or not a lot of people knew about them. But they were really, really fucking good. So we we kind of scoured inter- uh, Netflix and we found some, and we wanted to tell you guys about them just to get, maybe give you some uh, some recommendations of what you could watch while unfortunately you are quarantined. So these might help. So I'll go first. Um, I found uh, I found two because I, w- I wanted us to find two each, and I found Caliber and Super Dark Times. Now these were both really, really sick films. Um, to give kind of a synopsis, uh, Caliber is about uh, two childhood friends 
who go off on a hunting trip in the Scottish Highlands and wind up killing the wrong thing, which kicks off a massive chain of events that leads to like serious tragedy. Uh, but it is a hard, is a hardcore, uh, really intense thriller that I think people might really, really dig. And Super Dark Times um, is also a super, super intense psychological. I, I would say it's a psychological horror. It's kind of billed as a thriller, but it definitely has horrific elements because it's about two childhood friends. <clears throat> I, I'm sensing a theme here. Two friends <laughs> who go out into the woods and accidentally get involved in a very very gruesome accident and in their efforts to attempt to cover it up wind up driving a wedge between them that sends them off into paths of paranoia and extreme violence <clears throat> so those were two really really interesting flicks that i came across um little a little known but i think that our listeners might enjoy them uh eugene what did you find so I went and I scoured through and I actually found it's a Spanish film called The Bar. And basically what it is is it just starts off just like an everyday thing. People are just going going in and one person walks out of the bar and all of a sudden they get shot through the head and drop dead. So of course everybody else in the bar is like, okay, well, we don't want to leave. So what's going on? Uh, Two people are shot, and then a guy comes out of the bathroom, like, bleeding, and is clearly sick, and falls down. He's screaming, like, don't touch me, don't touch me. And that's when these people realize uh, they could possibly be exposed to some kind of, like, deadly virus, and that they could be quarantined in there. And so it's, it's it's a great movie because it's just... It's like everyday people just walking in casually. All of a sudden, you just find yourself in a situation that, especially with the t- with today's times, it's like a hey, wait, what? What happened? Okay, we got to figure out how how we're gonna get out of this to survive. So that that's a that's a great film. Definitely check it out. It's called The Bar. And the other one was <laughs> this is probably my favorite title out of all of them. Uh, Girls with Balls. <laughs> Make sure you type that in on Netflix and not Internet Explorer. Yes, if you're going to search for it, search Netflix "Girls of Balls." The Netflix part is really important on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's just it's a fun movie where you have it's a group of it's like a group of college volleyball players, and they end up on the way back from a tournament. It breaks down, and they end up fighting off this like degenerate group of hunters like in the middle of the woods but the thing is like it's a fun film it's fun it's they're using the ball and spiking it in like the bad guys faces and stuff like that and so it has some horror elements but it's gonna be funny it's 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 just it's a fun film so definitely definitely check that out so that's uh netflix the bar and then girls with balls <laughs> I can't. <laughs> one day I'll be mature enough to say that. <laughs> Not today, but one day. Girls with balls. <laughs> and then uh Alex, what were you able to find? Found a couple of good ones. The the first one that I found here is called Inhuman Kiss. And this is a Thai movie. Um it's a romantic horror film, but uh it, it's nineteen forties Thailand. And there is a, a detached head <laughs> involved in this tribe. And it, it, it starts 
taking over the lives of these poor people trying to go about their lives. But this one, it really caught me because it was a, a different kind of monster, you know, kind of Medusa-esque type. Just, it, it's it's weird because it's like this indigenous Thailand uh, back setting, but there's, there's a lot of elements in this that were very interesting. And I got an entry for Best International Fil- uh, Feature Film uh, at the 92nd Academy Awards, actually. Was not nominated, though. Um, and the second one I found was called When Angels Sleep. And this movie was about these this, this guy uh, is leaving. He's trying to get home. It's late. He gets tired. He gets pulled over. He uh, ends up driving anyways. Uh, and there's these two girls that were walking down the side of the road. The car swerves and hits one of them. And the friend that did not get hit that witnessed it started panicking. And so in order to try to fix the situation, uh, they have to kind of stick together. But things kind of go left turn real fast and some some dark stuff happens. So without spoiling it, um, that one was good, too. So that's called When Angels Sleep. Uh, That was a 2018 film. So pretty recent. Uh, Definitely check those out, though, as well. I want to go and watch JLs. Nice. I want to go watch your uh, Super Dark Times. Super Dark Times is, is pretty I'm intense. I'm going to have to go watch that. It's, it's, yeah, I'm going to check yeah. it out. All right. Awesome. So, some good hidden gems uh, on Netflix that you can check out if you happen to be stuck in the house, if you happen to be furloughed, or if you happen to be quarantined. And then to go down those again, it's Caliber, Super Dark Times, The Bar, Girls with Balls. <laughs> <laughs> Inhuman Kiss and When Angels Sleep. Awesome. Cool. Some good stuff for people to watch. All right. Okay, then. So, a couple of things to check out, but you here, you're here for us to talk about uh, some, uh, some movies out. So, Alex, what do we got first? <laughs> We're going to go way, way back. I get the first, and it is first of its kind, actually. We're talking about Blood Feast. This movie came out July 6, 1963, um, and like I said, it was the first of its kind. It was it's it's crowned the original splatter film, the first splatter film, directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis, written by Allison Louise Down. Uh, this one stars William Kerwin, Mal Arnold, uh, Connie Mason, Lynn Bolton, Scott Hale, Scott Hall. Sorry. Um, and this movie is its a lot of fun. It's about this uh, Egyptian caterer goes around and kills these women to bring back body parts to build a Egyptian goddess and bring her to life. And it's just fucking brutal. It's so brutal. It's so brutal. And it's the first Spider film. But honestly, like a lot of it looked it looks too real. There was like points where it's like, you know, you've cut yourself and you've seen blood on the floor. It's like when you watch a movie, like, you know that like the movie blood is fake because it doesn't look like the blood. And there's parts of this movie. It's like, that's real fucking blood. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was it was brutal. Yeah, yeah there are some <laughs> like brutal kills. And this is you're talking 1963. So you haven't seen kills like this before, like 
ever. There are films that have implied all sorts of bad things and, oh, we found a body ripped apart, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's been in filmmaking forever. But this is like, okay, a girl gets scalped, right, when she's, like, sitting out on a beach with her boyfriend and, like, top of her head's torn off and, like, c- tongues cut out and eyeballs gouged, uh, which is like she's sitting there like in the bathtub. And this is straight up, we are going to show you everything as real as we can make it. Oh, it's so fucking brutal. <laughs> uh, it's so wild, because this being the, the very, very first splatter flick, um, Herschel Gordon Lewis, we talked about him. Uh, we we uh, did a little in memoriam for him a little bit ago on his birthday, and what would have been his birthday. And... This guy was the father, the basically the father of of, mo- of the modern gore flick. Uh, we would not have movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you know pretty much anything gory or sloppy or disgusting. Uh, were it not for uh, like uh, Peter Jackson's early works, we would not have had any of this stuff without Herschel Gordon Lewis's um, Blood Feast. And what's funny, and I love this because we we look back on this movie with great fondness, despite you know the fact that it's it's, it's kind of under budget. Um, the acting is not fantastic, but the effort and the love that went into it to try to make it what it was, to make it so vicious and so brutal looking and to shock audiences the way Lewis did, uh, you, you can see it. It's all over it. Every, every scene is crafted lovingly. Um, the guts are just fantastic. Well, you know, to my eyes, they're fantastic, but this film is, is so hated by so many critics that everyone has just absolutely just wrecked all over this one. As a matter of fact, uh, I was I, as I was going with you know with the critics out of this one, that Variety is the Variety did a review of this in in a contemporary review, and they, they basically they declare the film to be a totally inept shocker, incredibly crude and unprofessional from start to finish, and an insult to even the most puerile and salacious of audiences. It labels the entire production a fiasco, calling the screenplay senseless, the acting amateurish. Of Herschel Gordon Lewis's direction, camera work, and musical composition, because he also composed on this, the review judged that he had failed dismally on all three counts. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And the LA Times described this film, this amazing fucking movie, as a blot on the American film industry. <laughs> so, little with that kind of pedigree, little did they know, with that kind of fucking pedigree, you cannot deny the brilliance of its director and the, I would say, the brilliance of its of its uh, author. Because the story was by David F. Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis, but the screenplay, which oftentimes, the screenplay can differ from the story because it puts things in a more cinematic perspective, was done by Allison Louise Down. And for a woman to have that kind of, you know, to have that kind of stomach to make something like this in 1963, that woman was a gem. So she was, there was something special about her. But yeah, this one, no one liked it. Eh, well, no one, except people like us. No one, Leia, no critic liked it. Everyone fucking hated it. And I think it was, um, uh, Friedman said in response to that Variety article, his quote was, Herschel and I have often wondered who told the Variety scribe that we were taking ourselves seriously? <laughs> because these guys were not. And you could tell there's love. 
but it, this movie does not take itself extremely seriously. It's for the the sheer joy and the sheer fun and the sheer catharsis of seeing the carnage unfold. Stuff like, I mean, come on, that we can't deny that that the whole like dinner spread, see the whole like like the di- the dining table spread. I mean, that was that was pretty gnarly. <laughs> I mean, but <laughs> just fucking parts. God, <laughs> God damn. But this, when you get something that is ahead of its time or that jump starts a genre, usually the first film is like panned across the board because critics are too busy comparing it to its other contemporaries of the time. But when you jump start a genre, there are no contemporaries. So they look at it like, well, this looks – it looks cheap. It's over gory for the sake of gore. It looks this. It's terrible. This should look like uh, Casablanca, but it doesn't. It looks cheap. But you see the influence that it has today. And the fact that we're still talking about it 40 years, 50 years later mm-hmm. says something about that. And the impact that it has and the fact that it sticks with you and the fact that it has influenced quite a few big-name directors to do today and big franchises. Like, you talk about the slasher slasher films. This is one of the things that led to I, – I like to consider this kind of proto-slasher, but – Yeah, I can see that. I, yeah, I like, you know, just like uh, ahead of its time, but – you, you get the slasher film because, what, to like 10, 11 years later, you get Texas Chainsaw Massacre come out, and it had huge praise. But somebody had to lead the way to that. So it's open it's, it's big. Yeah, open the door to it. Because, <laughs> you know, maybe it was a Toby, uh, Toby Hooper saw maybe saw this and was like, huh, maybe, maybe I can do something with this. <laughs> Wait a second, that oh, makes can, me you... feel something in my jimmies. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you could definitely see the inspiration in, you know, like Toby Hooper and Sean S. Cunningham, um, individual, like all the way to Rob Zombie. You could see that that the the influence, the, the just the wave of of awesome directors that we love and we have talked about often, that this is where it went. And even big name directors, uh, there there are films like Peter Jackson, obviously. To, uh, Peter Jackson with stuff like Brain Dead, with uh, Dead Alive. Um, what was it? Ridley Scott, obviously. And some and uh, I mean, we would not have the chestburster scene or the acceptability of the chestburster scene in 1979. It was 1979. 79? Uh, 79, yeah, 79. Yes. 1979. Were it not for things like this that we could show. You know, you show show people ripping apart like this. Well, yeah, that makes the, the, that that groundwork has been set. We can now see an alien, you know, exploding out of the chest of a human being, and you know, throwing blood all over the all over the cast. <laughs> so we the, these things we we take them for granted, and we have to look. We always have to look back at the foundation, and, and obviously the the guy who started it all, Herschel Gordon Lewis, which makes me so happy that this movie, uh, forty years later. <laughs> I think it was like actually 38 years ago, got a fucking sequel. Yeah, this may be one of the longest wait periods for a sequel. And it's still directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis. Like, it wasn't like a, hey, a film came out in the 60s and then a completely different group of people were like, oh, we kind of like this. And they acquired the rights and make a sequel. No, this is the same director 40 years later. 
and I finally got on top of it, and it's a Blood Feast 2, all you can eat. <laughs> and... Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, dug, I dug this one. I actually dug, the, I really kind of dug the, the uh, sequel because they injected comedy into it, which was kind of like, I think it was a nod to let people know that please don't take us so fucking seriously. <laughs> Okay, we're not so trying to mad. make a statement. <laughs> we're not trying to make a fucking statement here. <laughs> they just want to have fun. Like, that is it. <laughs> not every film has to be super serious. It's almost oh. a remake, though. That's the thing. Well, yeah, it's, it's the about the, uh, I think the grandson, the grandson of Ramses is trying to restart the catering yeah. business. <laughs> Um, I guess using using tried and true methods. <laughs> Just some god fucking around with this dude. <laughs> but you know it's it's awesome because he wanted to approach that one more time. Like that's that's actually really cool. It shows that it's a film that he that Lewis still thinks about, and he obviously must adore it because he wanted to make a sequel and. It's awesome. So wild. Definitely check definitely check that one out. <laughs> Blood Feast uh, 2. It's sh- it, it's shot in the uh in the same style as the original, in the same yeah, gr- you know, grindhouse style yeah. that Blood Feast was shot in. So it's a lot of it's it's and it's really, really cool to see, like you mentioned, Herschel Gordon Lewis coming back forty years later to revisit um one of his most you know, one of his most important IPs and to go back and continue the story. Um, that is just, it's a rarity in this industry to get the opportunity to do that. And I think a lot of people will really, really, a lot of fans of real super fans of, of horror, definitely of gore, gore hounds will definitely love these two fucking movies. It's great. <clears throat> but yeah, that's, that's what I've, I've got a question for our audience, or I guess a task for the audience go watch both of these. The first one is great. Perfectly not in the one second one's hilarious. Yeah, no, you got to do it like a double feature. Just run it all the way through. Do a double feature. You just run it all the way through. It's like it'll be like three hours, but you got it. Blood feast, blood feast too. Go watch it and let us know which one you liked better. Yes, definitely check these two movies out. Preferably don't eat in between. <laughs> I think it would be the best before, during, or because after. <laughs> before, during, or after. Go into it with an empty stomach. You probably won't want to eat that night. I'll eat afterwards anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, but let us know for sure. Let us know. We can horror at Gmail. We can horror at gmail.com. <laughs> trying to plug the fucking email. <laughs> uh. All right, JL, what do we got next? All right. We have, we're going even back even further. And this is a really, really cool one. Uh, one of my kind of like my guilty pleasures. Um, the Crawling Eye, released July 7th, 1958, otherwise known as The Trollenberg Terror, is a British film, British black and white science fiction monster film. And I, because I love me some some sci-fi, big giant monsters, uh, crazy stuff like that. Uh, directed by Quentin Lawrence and written by Jimmy Sangster, based on a story by Peter Key and... The 1956 TV series, so this had a lot of inspiration that went into making this movie, starring Forrest Tucker, Lawrence Payne, and Jennifer Jane. The story is, in essence, about a United Nations troubleshooter, and no, this is not World War Z, because I get it goes, ew, <laughs> no, I, was, I was watching that, I was like, oh, oh my god, it's virtually, it's almost the same. It's the same, but it's about a... 
<laughs> it's about a United Nations troubleshooter, um, Alan Brooks, who is joined by a journalist and to investigate in unusual incidents occurring around the area of this of this fictional uh, hotel in Swi- in Switzerland. And it uh, turns out that there is this uh, strange cloud that emits radiation that is traveling over the area that uh, many of the locals believe there are aliens inside. And all kinds of craziness is going around. Uh, and the uh, troubleshooter, the UN guy, and the journalists are trying to figure out and put a stop to it. Um, it's a fun little film, and while not great in every sense of it, it was the, – the problem was is that its failings helped to bury it amongst just a, the sea of sci-fi horror that was coming out during the 50s. And considering that this came out of England and England was trying to follow suit – not a lot of people really saw it, unfortunately. It it really didn't go well because you had we talk about films release dates and release dates are very very important. I mean, if you are a filmmaker today and you have your first film coming out, you don't want your film your film to have the same release date as say like Christopher Nolan's film or Quentin Tarantino's film. Or anything like that because it's just going to squash you right off the bat. People usually only see one movie a weekend and guess which one is going to pick. It's not going to be yours. So (laughs) it's not. And so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not. It's like, I'm sorry. I've got I got to pick one. And there are a lot of other there are a lot of other factors that can also determine in terms of what uh, movie release. There was a movie called Space Camp that came out in 1986, which about some group of teens that were actually launched into space through a space shuttle. Well, when they're in post production, the Challenger explosion happened. So now anything about uh, a space shuttle accident at this point is now it, it, you can't do anything about it. So it tanked. It's a good film. Check it out. But it tanked the film completely. And this is what ended up happening with uh, the Trollenberg terror. You had movies like the horror of Dracula. So you have these hammer, these hammer horror films that are coming out. Horror of Dracula, the revenge of Frankenstein, Lake of the dead. Um, you have the blob the, that came out. Yeah. yeah the, the nuclear, mo- the nuclear monster, the new- uh, Genre it was was cropping up in America exactly, and then the the terror from beyond space. So you had these movies, and these movies, and there's uh, there's several others that are just coming out, coming out, coming out. They're getting better releases. They're getting actors in it that people know. And honestly, this film just never stood a chance. Such a shame because it's actually a lot of fun, and it's cool to just to go back and look and how they did the monsters. I really really enjoyed it. How they did the monsters that when they discovered that the you know, the the giant eyes, um, the you know the one eyed giant creatures like that, you know, hitting them with fucking molotovs and shit in that final climactic fight, um, it's a lot of fun to watch them do it. It's, it's obviously it was a little on the cheap side. Obviously, you know, the effects don't really don't really stand up today. But going back, you can see nineteen fifty eight, um, they actually weren't weren't too terrible. Uh, the problem is that with you know with limited budget. There's only so many so, uh, so many talented individuals that you could pay to work on your project, and unfortunately, there's like Eugene said, there's just too many other larger productions and and studios putting out stuff that they can afford to bring in the top tier talent. Um, but that did not stop this film from having subtle reverberations throughout pop culture. 
all the way out through when I was looking into the 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 history of this movie, uh, it was like John Carpenter would pop in and say that like his film The Fog uh, was inspired from this film. But there was like little stuff like uh, uh, small soldiers. There was a, a moment when the toys were jumping on the remote and the TV turns on and this movie's playing in the background and. Uh, there was, it's just, I mean, it pops up here and there all over the place. There was one, I cannot remember. There was a movie that I just watched. It was called like baby doll or baby girl doll or something like that. Um, that had referenced it there too. But this, this is another one of those ones that comes from so long ago that we, we still see reference today. Well, that can, what's actually pretty interesting is you'll get something that, is kind of buried a little bit. And then in pop culture, it's like if they want to reference a horror movie, but they they don't want to reference like a mainstream one, this is kind of one of the ones they go to because in a couple of films, you will, you'll see it where they're watching it on the television or somebody will just mention it in casual conversation. It can be like a throwaway line or something like that. And it's just that little bit of nugget. Most people just oh, won't even think about it, but that, handful of people they're like oh the crawling eye okay all right all right they did their homework it's popped up from time to time again uh i I love seeing it whenever it does um i really really dug and it you didn't see it in the movie but it it was in the book uh in uh the book stephen king's it um the crawling eye actually shows up as one of the monsters that the that uh, pennywise morphs into to scare the kids um, so it shows up there. So Stephen King made use of it. It obviously it was mocked on Mystery Science Theater three thousand, which is a you know a great fucking show. Um, Crawling Eye was really it was uh, that was a funny one, not as funny as Mono's Hands of Fate. That was that was really good. But, uh, <laughs> That's one of my favorites. The uh, I just wish those big hands would push him over. <laughs> I'll always remember that line. But uh, they they totally uh, lampooned uh, the Crawling Eye, and it has it. For some reason, despite its lack of popularity, it pops up every now and then, which is really, really cool to see people kind of – I mean, even it showed up in an episode of Freakazoid. So, and I honestly believe that it was the inspiration that, – uh, that this movie was the inspiration behind um, Welcome to Night Vale's – the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, uh, The oh, Glow the Cloud. Cloud. Which is <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. Oh. The glow cloud that that the glow cloud the glow cloud that occasionally rains dead animals all over the place, and I firmly believe that that the the crawling eye was a big inspiration behind that. So we've seen it, despite the fact that it was that it wasn't popular at the time. It didn't make a ton of money. It's not one of the more well knowns, you know, like the Trollenberg Terror or the Crawling Eye. Um, there are people out there who have loved it and have kept it alive, which is really, really, really cool. So that brings up my uh, what I wanted to ask the audience. And this is kind of an obscure one. So many of you may not really have an opinion. That's okay. But I'm kind of curious. We talk so much about, you know, did you like a film or did you like, you know, what did you dig about this? But The Crawling Eye has its roots. The story has its roots in radio horror, in radio uh, uh, scare shows. Where it would be like, you know, like very similar to War of the Worlds in that kind of style. And I'm very, very curious. Do you listen to those? Does Do any of our listeners listen to old-timey radio radio show broadcasts? Because you can, you can listen to them on YouTube. They're online. Do you guys – do any of you listen to those? And 
If you do, what is your favorite of them? I'm very, very curious. Let us know. Weekinhorror at gmail.com. All right. We are kicking off. We're going to go a little bit dark. And we're going to kick it off to Eugene, who's got our next one. All right. So released July 7th, 1995, we have the movie Species, which is directed by Roger Donaldson and starring Ben Kingsley, Michael Madsen, Alfred Molina, Forrest Whitaker, and Natasha Henstridge. And basically what ends up happening is the government intercepts a space transmission containing some genetic sequencing, and so they end up following that, and they mold it with a mold with like a female genome to basically make something in a lab, and they end up creating Syl, played by Natasha Henstridge. And they, so she grows up, accelerating, she has like some mutation abilities and other, other kinds of stuff, and they end up like, well, we don't want to deal with this, so they try to take her out, and then she goes off. And her goal is to become impregnated so she can continue her species. So it was to have a baby. Yeah, really, really (laughs) wants to have a baby. Really, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did really dig, and uh, I know a lot of our a lot of big fans out there know it. I really dug um, the hallmarks. Uh, Basically, because H.R. H.R. Giger, uh, who was responsible for the the you know designing the he was an artist who designed. His uh, designs, his really, really creepy designs were the inspiration behind uh, the Aliens in the Alien franchise. And it was also his artwork that inspired, that inspired the design of Syl in her, uh, the, the, in, her, in her alien form. And if you have not seen those images, they are trippy as fuck. <laughs> but definitely give them a look because they are really cool. And you can see uh, in Giger's work, you, know, you, you, you can almost see the, the transition of what Giger created to what appeared in the film and what they kept and what they decided to, to remove or what they decided to kind of streamline, but really, really cool shit right there. Um, but this, this is an intro. I, I love, I love this movie now more, more now than what you have before. I always enjoyed species, but it's because we've come so far in technology in this day and age, we are getting to the point where we are pushing, where we are, we are set. We are on the, the, the landing pad to progress further into space and to and we're you know picking up radio signals from all, all from you know from the cosmos we don't know where they come from. Really, really interesting shit is going on in science fields today. But this one, 1995. I mean, fuck, I was 15. Yeah, yeah, I was. This movie. Yeah, uh, no, I was 10, 11, something like that. Yeah, and this one asked the questions. Or asked an early question. Stephen Hawking only, you know, uh, recipe Stephen Hawking, but only a few years ago, Stephen Hawking broached the subject of aliens or humans encountering another intelligent species, humans encountering aliens of any kind. And he was fearful of it. But this in 1995, sci-fi, it asked that question. What would happen? Humans meeting aliens. And I love that aspect about this film. (laughs) First thing that happens is like, you know, we just fucking... Oh yeah, this genome sequence just comes down from space. Let's fucking make it, you know. <laughs> Let's hybridize it with a human it's, it's being. Like, <laughs> they handed them like a Lego kit, and there's a big picture of like a nasty alien on the front of it. And they're like, "We should build it," and then 
<laughs> and then it goes into the whole, you know, the species is trying to like, is it invasive? Is it, you know, what is it like a superhuman? And, and there was just a lot that went into the, the whole view. That's, I, like you said, I enjoy it more now because like, it, like you said, it was 1995, but also we've come so far. So just watching like, you know, this, the early alien movies, alien, you know, what, what people thought aliens would be like and like how people would react to them. Now, I don't know. Stephen Hawking made a good point. He said he was, like you said, he was fearful of, like, because what would we do? I mean, at this point, I wouldn't be survive, wouldn't be surprised if if it happened. But, uh, you know, the the thought of... Oh, given, given 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you gotta th- you given gotta think given about the state it, of 2020, it wouldn't shock. It, it would, yeah, it would be rough, but... I mean, like Yellowstone could blow up and it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a shocker. <laughs> oh, at this point, well, because you have to keep in mind any alien species that can get here are, are ne- Yeah, the nearest star is four light years away. So, I mean, that means even just theoretically, the fastest that we could possibly ever it'll still take four years to get to. That's just the nearest solar system how vast the galaxy is. So if you had an intelligent species that came, even if they came from that star, will have technology far more advanced than anything we can, like, perceive yeah, but at Eugene, this point. Is that, yeah. is that even really that, is it really that implausible? I mean, oh, the things saying... that we've made, like... Oh, I'm say, not like, saying oh, it's impossible. Advanced. I mean, we're, we're pretty close to being able to go to the speed of light. It's... Being able to being able to hit the speed of light, or maybe even possibly travel faster than the speed of light, means if they want to take over our planet, there is nothing we can do about it. <laughs> oh no, that technology would would annihilate us. It would, an- or some sort of alien pathogen. It would annihilate know, whole, us so fast. The whole the whole thing behind the whole like the the people get this this genome sequence. They're <laughs> just like, okay, yeah. I'm like that's that's our downfall right there. We would just. <laughs> Fuck it up. <laughs> and of and of course, and of course, the argument is made, especially in this film, because obviously, you know, organic life. Uh, one of the one of the fundamental aspects of organic life, as we know in the universe, is the desire to procreate. Um, and of course, any alien species, we would have no idea what it's you know biologically, you know, anything about it. And so, the idea of it being an alien and trying to breed and propagate its own species. Uh, it, it it works it works as far as the creep fest goes, but that was one thing that always did that did kind of bug me about species, and that this is where we're going to kind of take a, a little bit of a deep dive um, in this film and our next film is that uh, species it didn't I didn't really grasp what was unsettling me until mu- you know until I was much much older, but the use of motherhood and the act of procreation, no matter how even if it's alien or it's human or whatever, the act of procreation um, from the female perspective being utilized as a horror trope. And I find that to be really, really, I don't know, I have mixed feelings. I really do. Because I started looking, and as, as we're doing this podcast, and of course I'm a giant horror fan, I began to see this trope is used actually quite often. The, 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 the female body the act of how how the, everything is internalized, you know, the baby is internalized. You know, the sex they internalize. They kind of inter- they, you know, I'm not going to get into graphic detail, but they kind of internalize the man. Their emotions are internalized. Um, 
everything about it being contrasted to the male. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know what the reasons for it. My hypothesis is that it's because the vast majority of horror fans are male. So it's playing to that respect. But I could be wrong. What do you think? Hmm. I guess, I guess now that you, you mentioned the motherhood kind of being widespread, it definitely, it plays a lot. And not just like necessarily like the the being pregnant or, you know, the the horror to, but like even into like, uh, like the omen, you know, like the child, they, they always play off of the mother and the mother always comes off as crazy or evil or, uh, you know, has something to do with it or, you know, but... But it always puts you in like a, well, you know, if it was your kid, what would you do kind of situation? Or yours, you know, if you were in her shoes, what would you do? And so, yeah. Now that, or like Rosemary's like Baby. Rosemary's Baby, exactly. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, like it, it goes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's a perfect example of, you know, you're going to love your children no matter what. And, mother, you know, there's nothing like a mother's love. Uh, yeah, and I'm I think sure that's, that. I'm sure that's a tagline for a movie. but i think that's something that is pretty interesting because you talk about the relationship between say a mother and an offspring which is one of the strongest bonds that there is out there when just a child's in danger the links that a mother will go to to protect and we see it across species um, not just with humans, but just a ton of different animals that it's like that. And oh yeah, what's the what's the lyric to that song? The the female of the species is more deadlier than the male. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It I mean, it is. We all have significant others. We understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> when you talk about even you know, like with bears and the mother bear. How do you, what's the fastest way to piss off a bear is you take one of the cubs. No, what's and... the fastest way to die? Take a bear cub. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes absolutely. So, so that's a curi- that's a curiosity that I have that I, I kind of fall back on where I can see it. And it's, it's evocative and sometimes provocative and to the male eye. And I'm wondering, you know, like, why the use of it? Is it necessary? Is it something that will always be a, a a horror trope or you know it are its roots kind of in sexism kind of in you know how some you know a lot of men kind of view the the female body as kind of alien to their own because they only know their own skin they can only kind of bodily compare with other males and the female the female body being so functionally or you know found or fundamentally different from their own, there is a kind of alien sensation to it, and because the vast majority of horror moviegoers are male, uh, it's just a big you know males make up the, the the primary or the most of the demographic. Is this kind of was this kind of born out of that? Is like we know the audience we're catering to, so we can play on these tropes, um, and to take Alien for example, that was the same thing: impregnation, turning the turning the man into. Uh, Turning the man into the woman by you know impregnating him with the alien, and so the kind of role reversal on that, the, the uh, raping the guy's mouth and then sticking an egg in him, and then bursting out of him, him giving birth, and it made you know there was an unsettling sensation to that amongst male viewers where they were deeply unsettled by that, but women were not really. It was the you know the the death, the blood coming out, the spraying the spraying the rest of the crew, the you know the alien coming you know coming out of the whole thing and then running off. That was freaky. But guys, that 
it really resonated with male audiences, the idea of this thing jumping on you and then basically fucking your face. <laughs> okay. And Get impregnating you with something exactly that's beyond your control. And it puts the guy, it puts the man the man in the woman's shoes. And many people were very un, you know, discomfited by that. And I'm kind of curious, this trope, is it necessary? Is it a natural progression of the art form? Or is this something we consciously do that we don't – maybe we don't need to do it anymore? That's where I'm – you know, my mind has been kind of like warping around that. We're going to get you – know, particularly in this one, whereas uh, Natasha Hensridge's Sill is the ultimate – is obviously the ultimate beauty in her human form. And in her human form, she's just trying to lure – that's the bait, trying to lure men in. And then, of course – to perform her function as to procreate, she, you know, morphs into her alien form. And so it, now it's terrifying. Now it's not just trying to flirt with you. It's not just trying to, you know, seduce you or to do whatever. Now it's trying to, you know, get it on with you. And then all of a sudden the spikes and tentacles come out. What's, what's really interesting is typically you have the males are the aggressors and the, the males, the okay. males are the ones that bad, you know, bad people. Males are typically the ones that force themselves on the females. And that's typically how it is. Obviously not every case, but typically how that is when you look at say like sexual assaults, but in this movie species, it's the opposite because she's the aggressor. And she, she's actively looking. For she's a mate. actively looking for a mate. She's actively aggressively looking for somebody. And then once the moment comes, she shows her true self. So it's like it's a sexual assault, but it's the gender roles are reversed in it. And maybe so she shows she she shows herself, and she's and, and but when she does, when she's there to accomplish her task. When she's that close, she reveals herself to be a monster. And exactly. And when you look at when you look at assault cases, that's simply how it is. You can have a guy that can be super nice and he can buy you dinner and all this other kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden you get in alone in the car with him in the back seat, and then the guy forces himself on a female, that's the true guy at that moment. So it's when she uh. is forcing herself upon the guy, she is revealing her true self. So could we legitimately say, and I and I definitely want to hear what you think on this. Could we, uh, hear what you think on this, Alex? But could we could we legitimately say that it's not so much motherhood or procreation of that or any of that as a horror trope? It is the reversal of that, putting the female form in the guy's shoes and guys reacting negatively because they're seeing it from the female perspective. That this is kind of like this is what it looks like to us, and you are now seeing it. Because you can identify with these actions. You can identify with the aggression. You can identify with the pursuit. You can identify often with the violence. Only you're seeing, basically, you're seeing what you guys do only in the female form. And that makes terrifying because they're, they're not so much scared of the woman. They're scared of what the woman is doing because they can identify with what and why and how, what and why she is doing. Yeah, I think that, yeah, go ahead, Alex. <laughs> I just watched this thing because you guys got into it real hard there. I just watched this thing just spin in circles and flip and twist and it, it all makes a lot of sense. I feel like a lot of the 
a lot of these movies that are well done with a lead actress, you know, being the mother can play it very well because of those natural instincts. Like you're talking about kind of a reversal thing. Like here, I'm going to portray what, you know, what we see, you know, this is what we feel. And so like, I see a lot of that in those mother, you know, the, the actual actresses on that end with the, the movie wise, I think, I think you're right. When it, they take, they take male, Situate they, they want to make males uncomfortable because like there's you know fans are males and they're trying to hit an audience but also it's just like that's just how it's always been so when you see stuff outside that uses this trope and then you kind of move outside of it and look at it a different way i'm trying to think of something recent but it's it's kind of all been the same because that's what it's always been so i think maybe they should like they should probably look in at, we're talking about it i'm trying to think of some other examples i can't off the top of my head but i feel like maybe we could use this trope still and maybe work it more into a modern day you know now that all this like change is going on let's let's try to portray this trope in a different way i'm, I'm kind of excited because you guys brought up a lot of really good points about how you know it, it, it's how the, make the men get uncomfortable with some of the stuff and the women are like not uncomfortable with it it's like maybe you can use that in the future to kind of bridge that gap. That, that's an interesting point because if it's making you feel uncomfortable, it's making you feel uncomfortable for a reason. Right. And it may be something that in our society no one likes to talk about and we squash it and you put it in the back closet and then you just ignore it. But then you have a movie that brings that out. It's like, no, this is something that happens. Look at it. Right. Look at it from this perspective, and that's what's uncomfortable about it. But it's so it's something that needs to be brought out. Yeah, yeah. Squash it out. Uh, yeah, th- that is. So, as I actually, I like to ask the audience, and we talked about how species kind of has that gender role swap on it. What are some? What are some of the other movies? out there that have a gender role swap that maybe it's something that males normally do that or male some males do that females do now or maybe something that females do that males normally do so what are some of your favorite horror films that have that gender that gender role swap definitely email us and let us know i'm actually really excited to see some of these answers mrs doubtfire yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, out for you. Awesome. <laughs> so, all right, Alex, what's our last movie today? <laughs> Speaking of, yeah, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna finish this off on uh, a movie called Contracted. This came out July seventh, twenty thirteen. And I was looking at that date and I was like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> this, this is a body horror movie written and directed by Eric England. Um, this movie stars, stars Nahara Townsend. Oh, I got it there. Nice. Uh, Caroline Williams, Alice MacDonald, uh, Katie Stegman, Matt Mercer, Charlie Kuntz, uh, and Simon Barrett. And this movie follows a woman, Samantha, through her transformation after having a <laughs> see this. Okay, so she goes to a party, has a little bit too much, gets drugged, 
and is raped by this man. And the next day she starts to feel ill and uh, she progressively becomes more sick and deteriorated as she slowly kind of transforms into a zombie because of this uh, STD, I guess you could call it. This biohazard yeah. STD. Yeah, what's what's interesting about it, and I think this is almost the same year as uh, It Follows that came out, yeah. whereas It Follow ha- It Follows has the external threat because you have that creature that's chasing them, despite the target being um, sexually transmitted. This is more of the internal, where it's the internal itself where she starts falling apart her fingernails are coming off and her, her eyes are becoming bloodshot yeah her tooth comes out and her hair starts coming out in clumps yeah and oh that's see when she's like you're oh hair. yeah <laughs> <laughs> whoa just her 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 just that, that moment when she's in the mirror when, when her friend is like oh my god what the what the hell is wrong with your eye she's like what because <laughs> she didn't feel anything and she goes but she's and she's like literally just like what the fuck i <laughs> 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 felt so bad for her just the the idea and this is interesting because interesting that you brought that up eugene because we were talking about that before with tetsuo with tetsuo the iron man and it falls very much in the vein of like cronenberg and the body kind of revolting against what you want it to do um you're expecting one thing, but your body is just completely out of control. And I love that uh, there were hallmarks of that here, but it definitely, it definitely was a twist on. I love the twist on the cautionary tale of that, and it flipped it in a way, and I dug, which I dug because the typical cautionary tale is girls who go out and girls who party and uh, put themselves in bad situations. It's obviously, it's a, vic- it's a victim-blaming trope, but girls who go out and do this, bad things can happen to them. They can get date-raped at, you know, at parties. Uh, they can get robbed. They can get mugged. They can you know get killed, all kinds of stuff. But the flip on this was is that this girl who is just trying to relax and kind of get away from a bad situation, kind of clear her head a bit, is taken advantage of. She is She's raped by a party-goer who drugs her. Um, legit. And then... But ultimately, even though what happens to her is horrific, it ultimately empowers her. And I like that aspect because Absolutely. we start the movie and um, we start the movie and Samantha is uh, the is just out of control. She's broken up with her girlfriend, Nikki. She does know what she wants to do in her life. Uh, her plant that her her flower thing is is you know speculative at best. Her, she has no support from her mother, who doesn't support her lesbianism or um. Or her previous life, because she used to be kind of a party kid, and she's you know gotten herself off drugs, but you know her mother doesn't support her, her her girlfriend doesn't support her, and her, nobody really takes her seriously, and she's just kind of drifting through life, and so in a bad headspace, she gets taken advantage of, just like the caution tale, but it flips it in that she's derived from that horrible experience, she ends up deriving her power, and ultimately ends up weaponizing her affliction against kind of those who she. She ends those who really have disregarded her and completely treated her like she's by invisible. By tearing their throats out with her teeth. Yes, yes, by eating them alive and doing <laughs> shit like that, yes. But I like the, the flipping of the cautionary table that we can be empowered by our traumas. And though ultimately Samantha is you know, descending into, into you know, the state of the undead, she is becoming a fucking zombie from the inside out. Um, there's some graphic, graphic scenes that depict that. 
but I did enjoy the flipping event. She recognizes her affliction. She recognizes that it can work for her in a limited basis. She doesn't have much time, so she applies it and go ultimately goes to show that she had that strength in her. She just needed something to kick her in the pants. And unfortunately, it was something horrifying like, you know, catching an STD virus that turns you into a fucking zombie. <laughs> what's what's what actually... It's a Wednesday. Yeah, well, damn. <laughs> grr, grr, Wednesday. Uh, but what's what's interesting, because you brought up the point in terms of taking something and switching it to your power, is the fact that uh, I had a friend that had – they had a drug problem for a while, and everybody went – and was like talk behind her back and all. Oh, she had to go to rehab. Oh, she had to do this. She had to do that. And they, everybody talked down on the fact that she had to go to rehab. And th- a bunch of assholes. Yeah, we, I mean, which is which is like a dick move. <laughs> and then when I got a chance to go and hang out with her, she was proud of the fact that she went to rehab because to her it was recognizing the problem, dealing with something that, to make her life better. And like sitting down talking to her about that really changed my viewpoint. Like, you know, rehab is something to be proud of. And she's she's ultimately she's she's been clean for seven eight years now. But awesome. yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. So it's definitely happy ending. But you take you you take that, and it's right off the bat. It's oh well, she's the partier. Oh well, she does this. She brought it upon herself. And no, she can. Somebody can actually change. And sometimes embrace that, and then, and then you know, of course, she goes and kills people. So, <laughs> you know, people's <laughs> fucking throats out with their teeth. That was so brutal. <laughs> well, there, there was a, there's a couple scenes, especially the uh, that uh, that third act sex scene uh, with her when uh, she seduces that when she seduces that guy who's always had the hot. Oh score. yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh gross. Yeah, that's uh, gross. I think it was uh, Riley when she, when she seduces Riley. I blocked Riley. that scene yeah. out. Shut up. <laughs> Dude, that, uh, was rough. Gonna... that was rough. And then he goes into the into the room and sees the other part. Ah, things, things really hit the fucking fan there. I'm just gonna say maggots. That that's it right there. Stop it. Yeah, yeah. Not really. But that just goes to show, and 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 uh, that that will lead us back around like uh, onto the subject that we broached in species is the horror of the female form and that the functionality of it the kind of alien nature of it um and yet the kind of all the and yet the absolutely undeniable alluring beauty of it as well drawing men in ultimately leading them to the i mean we we could trace it like this all the way back to the sirens of um of greek of greek mythology you know, beautiful women drawing men into their doom, and it it, it once again is uh this is a trope that we run into quite a lot. The horror of the female form. Yeah, this is something that it's not talked about a lot growing up, especially we're coming from like the male perspective. Most people growing up aren't taught that much about the female form, the female body, and there are plenty of women that get little to no education at all on their own bodies. So that's not okay. Which is which is not okay. I one hundred percent towards yeah, sexual education and telling people and being informative and all this other kind of stuff and that is so much so much better. But we 
still kind of have this Victorian mentality that, no, you keep it repressed. You don't say anything. Uh, abstinence. You simply just wait until marriage. Because Texas was big about it for a long time. Well, you just wait until marriage. And that was like the sexual education. So the female form becomes mysterious. It can be – it's alluring and can draw you in, but it's scary and it's unknown at the same time. Just like the genetic sequencing thing, we just we always gotta <laughs> fuck around with it. We gotta touch it. <laughs> oh, like in Splice when we were talking about that. No, yeah. See, there's a, there's another one, another one that we touched on because in Splice of that because uh, um, Dren Dren was uh, female at first, and yeah. then of course in the third act of that she transitions to male and she attempts to procreate as well. But the the female form in that, both alluring and extraordinarily deadly at the same time. This is a, a consistent trope, and it, I, it it brings up questions. It really does. It brings up, and this is another one of those where it can make you uncomfortable. So that means it's actually it's hitting the core on something. It's hitting on some of the values that we have grown up with, or I guess maybe values is the wrong word, but it's kind of a tale of society that we've grown up with. And hopefully a lot of the stuff comes out more that we get more information about it that so it's not such a big deal anymore. We need to know. We need to know. And not just women either. You know, males need to be educated on this stuff too. It needs to be an all around thing. And you know what? It, it really falls on it really falls on parents because we've been talking about these movies this whole time or the last couple at least. You know, it, this procreation and, you know, this mysterious female form. I, I'm 30, and, like, I remember going back, thinking about it in school. We just weren't taught. And our parents had, like, very – they didn't – it's uncomfortable. But, like, it needs to be – it needs to be no. You got things like STDs, not necessarily ones that will turn you into a fucking cannibalistic zombie person, but – you know, th there's there's enough that we need to know before it's too late, and it, and it can't just be on women to know that stuff. Men need to know it too. I mean, they really do, and any proof of that is for our listeners out there. Think back to when you're in high school and all the misconceptions you had on sex. Because we all heard all these tales, oh, well, she can't get pregnant if they're first time, or if you're standing up in a shower, and all, all this other kind <laughs> of stuff. All these misconceptions and rumors that spread, and you know, as adults now, we know it's all bullshit. But if you're not around to tell your kids, hey, that's bullshit, by the way, that's what they're going to believe because that's all they got. That's the, all the information they have access to. Yeah, and that's you know that's that's 2013 that this movie came out, and it's still something that we're. I mean, we've definitely progressed a lot recently, and that like you know that has a, a huge impact on the way that we. Have, I mean, even movies now, you can watch movies and there's all sorts of gender swapping and you know role reversals and all this stuff. But then I mean, even as soon or you know as soon as soon ago as not that I don't know back in 2013, not that long ago. You know, stuff like this was still acceptable. Like, like you were talking about, you know, this girl was drugged. Date rape was like a thing. You got this this trope of like, oh, you know, this party girl goes out and she's more likely to get raped. And we've been talking about that a lot as a as a human race recently about, like, it should not be about what the girl's wearing. It should not be about 
You know, uh, you know, it's, a, a woman should be able to walk to her house, you know, from her car at night, not worried about getting raped, and then having somebody be like, "Oh, well, what was she wearing?" No, f- fuck that. Uh, yeah, it's every single person with respect. You do. It's it's the only crime out there where people blame the victim because you don't hear stuff like, "Oh, well, you know what? That guy was asking for his house get broken into. Yeah, that guy was asking <laughs> to get his car stolen." Like no one, no one does, no one does that. But it's well, what was she wearing? Was she, you know, putting signals out there that the man took wrong or anything like that? I don't care if a girl is butt ass naked walking down the street; she does not deserve to get raped, like at all. True. I, I mean, as much as you deserve to get raped, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> think of it that way but it's it, it's an interesting perspective um and that's why it, it, i i had while well, i enjoyed the movie i had mixed feelings about subject matter because i think you can look at it from two perspectives you can look at it from uh the 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 tragedy happens to the girl and out of that tragedy she's able to find some modicum of strength she's able to find her power and utilize that power to her advantage before the inevitable conclusion and then on the thing on the other side of that, you could say that a woman acting uh, uh, the, uh, on the more on the more I would say the darker side of that, the darker opinion would be that this uh, silly girl who doesn't know what she wants winds up getting a you know in uh, just kind of acting out, gets herself into a, into a bad situation with a with a really bad guy, ends up getting sick, and then doing the only thing she can do, which is lash out at everyone around her because of her deteriorating condition. I'm so um, mad. I do, yeah, I don't know if both perspectives. I know uh, uh, many people think that both are valid, but it it feels that there is an a sense of sexism to both of them, which may have which because it was another film that was very very that was very comparable to this one, which was the uh, Thanatomorphos. Th- yeah, th- which yeah, exactly. didn't mm-hmm. it didn't ring the same because that was a girl. Who and in you know it was kind of going through the same thing that um, Samantha's going through in this one, but she's in an abusive relationship and her condition and she's been behaviorally conditioned by this as you know battered woman syndrome. But as her body begins to deteriorate, she recognizes the kind of the 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 dichotomy and begins to retaliate back. And there was there was a greater sense of empowerment in that one than there was in this one. This one felt a bit more mixed. It I, I could agree with that totally. I guess that that brings me up to question for the audience. I, I want to know what you guys think about about this trope um, and the using this. We've talked about both it both ways. It's kind of sexist. The sexist kind of trope as a horror is this something that would be acceptable because it's scary and it makes you feel vulnerable. You know, it makes it puts a a potential issue for a lot of people out there on the screen. So yes, it could be scary and it could be horror. But like, is it necessary? Is it too sexist? Is this movie and movies like it? Is it too sexist to have out there? Should we go in a different direction? Maybe kind of try to use the vulnerability in a different way, not just like oh, it's because she's a, a cute woman, uh, or you know, or can we still use this as? as a horror trope and it'd be effective in doing what it's supposed to do, which is scare you and not take it any farther than that. Are we looking too far into it? <laughs> Let us know. 
All right, JL, why don't you start us off with our happy birthday, uh, and that's going to be followed up with an in memoriam. Absolutely, definitely. We do have one birthday and one in memoriam. Um, the birthday we're taking, and I, and I, that's one thing I love. One thing I, I really, really love about doing this show is that we get to occasionally um, send out some love to the character actors that everybody sees and everybody recognizes, but nobody really knows who they are. And happy birthday today to Pruitt Taylor Vince, who was born July 5th, 1960. And I wanted to show this guy some love because he is one of my all-time favorite character actors, easily top three. Everybody's seen him. Um, if I were to describe him, you might recognize him. He is a, is a tall guy. He's a bit on the heavy side, but he is known for an actual physical, um, it's not really an ailment, but it's just something about him. He has um, uh, a, a condition called, I believe it's pronounced nystagmus. Yeah, nystagmus. Which causes involuntary movement of the eye. So his eyes shift back and forth. Like they like they're like they're like they're looking like constantly shift uh, shifting rapidly. Now he's uh, in his later roles as he's gotten kind of a better control of it, but it still occurs, especially when you can tell when he gets emotional, his eyes kind of just dart back and forth, like they like they're not focusing on something. Um, and he has incorporated it well into into many roles that he has played. Um, I think uh, when I first saw saw his work was in the X Files, when he <laughs> he was the guy who was um, ice pick lobotomizing women, and he tried to do it to Scully. Because uh, Chris Carter's able to go in there with the camera and get that kind of like really close up when he's got the uh, the troika, you know, going towards their face and his eyes are just twitching back and forth like that. So wild. But that's definitely what got me uh, where he first caught my attention. And I've followed him ever since and pretty much everything that he's got. He's been in so much stuff, so much good stuff, too. Oh, yeah, because he was in uh, Identity with John Cusack. In it, yes, yes. Which I mean, that was that was a fantastic movie, and he was also in Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, he was the, uh, the the priest. yeah yes. So I mean, it's it's good the fact the that Hennessy, he yeah. yeah Father Hennessy Father Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's good the fact that he is getting a lot of work. I mean, he's been on TV shows like The Blacklist and Agents of Shield, Stranger Things, uh, Heroes Reborn, The Mentalist. Uh, True Blood. I mean, he's just working constantly, and it's just—it's nice that you have these people out there that like legitimately go out, and make a career, and they're just doing their thing. We all—we're all so fixated on the Brad Pitts and all the the other kind of stuff, but it's like, hey, I'm just going out, I'm making a career, and I'm just doing doing what he loves. That's awesome. These the, these are the guys that give that that make them that basically. That populate the films that we watch, um, that make them real, that allow us to break, uh, that allow us to suspend our disbelief. And I mean, this guy, I mean, Pruitt started off strong, and he it started off strong with Angel Heart, um, with uh, fucking uh, Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke. I mean, he kicked that one off in 1987, and he's been going strong ever since. With you know, he was in Night, he was in Red Heat, in Mississippi Burning. Um, Jacob's Ladder, JFK, Natural Born Killers. I mean, this is Natural Born Killers. That's right. I did the one that uh, Mallory shoots through the hand when he's like, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones like, oh, he's he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you know he's done so much work with so many individuals, and I and I wanted to show Pruitt uh, the love that he deserves because as much as he's done in film, 
And I think uh, the the latest thing, um, people remember him if they saw it from Bird Box. Yep. He was the blind priest in uh in the school that that uh, Sandra Bullock was trying to get to with the kids. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And as much as he's done in film, he has done just as much in TV. So it's really really awesome to see him. Um, uh, to see you know to see how much work he's he's churning out. I loved him in Stranger Things. So super super cool. Uh, happy birthday to Pruitt Taylor Vince. Going strong. We hope to see more from you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Pruitt. And and uh, Eugene, yes, you have our in-memoriam. Uh, yes. And so for our in-memoriam, uh, born July 10th, 1926, and passed away July 2nd, 1993, we have Fred Gwynn. And oh, I love this dude so much. A extremely talented actor. We're looking at films such as Pet Cemetery, the original, the the good one from 1981, and <laughs> I, I want to clarify that the only correct Pet Cemetery, that one, that one, and then he was on the Munsters. Um, he was also in the movie My Cousin Vinny, and just yes, that's right. He was judge. He was a uh, judge. Was yeah. Judge. <laughs> yes. What. What is a ute? <laughs> the two utes. The two utes. What is a ute? <laughs> oh, when, uh, when, uh, what was it Joe Pesci said? Uh, what was his fucking line? And Fred Gwynn just went off. He was like, well, how about I just go fuck myself? <laughs> and the judge is like, what did you say? He's like, what? What? I didn't hear nothing. <laughs> he was so excellent in that. I mean, just, just, just amazing, just, just amazing. Just, I mean, somebody who obviously has has done some like fantastic roles, has been in some great, great movies, and I, it's just great to honor him. It was so cool. I mean, we all grew up. I think uh, many of us grew up. Um, well, I grew. I, I, I kind of grew up watching the Munsters. Um, yeah, Herman Munster. Uh, it was the that I think that was that with along with things like with uh, shows like Elvira. And was kind of like the opening of uh, kind of me as a child into the area of universal horror because you kind of wonder oh you kind of recognize oh it's Frankenstein oh so, oh that's Bride of Frankenstein oh the you know Eddie is a fucking vampire uh or you know, gra- Grandpa is a vampire Eddie is a werewolf and then the daughter the hot daughter who is human which is interesting but um <laughs> and it was kind of like the opening the, the opening the door to Universal Monsters and Fred Gwynn's performance as Herman. The affable and goofy Frankenstein kind of made that okay. It says yes, they, they, they these can be scary figures, but they don't have to be scary figures. And it kind of cements it in your mind as a child and opened the door for me to kind of go into horror. And I, I have Fred Gwynn to thank for that. And just ooh, you know, he, I couldn't possibly do it, but he was so much fun to watch on that show and, and the, the everybody from grandpa all the way around the whole, the whole cast was amazing, but definitely so influential on my life as an artist, as um, a horror fanatic, um, as a writer as well. So loved him. And of course I'm, you know, I'm going to, he, he did many, many movies, but we're all going to love him and remember him for uh, playing Judd Crandall in pet cemetery, yeah. which was just stellar, which is just, I mean, it's just amazing. I know we've we've we've, we've so talked about cool. Pet Cemetery so many times and how Judd has a special place in our heart. Always, yes, always. So, so cool. definitely, definitely, we miss you, Fred. Thank you for everything that you've given us. Rest in peace, Fred. 
Rest in peace. Well, all right. I'd like to thank our listeners for stopping by and hanging out with us for a little bit. Uh, why don't you guys go ahead to WeCanHorror.net. Give us a check there. Uh, we do a monthly giveaway, monthly t-shirt giveaway on there. Um, and we just had our first winner. So go ahead, go on there, punch in your email address. We won't spam you with anything. We're not going to send you a whole bunch of stuff. It's just the easiest way for us to get you all into one place. Uh, go to uh, WeCanHorror at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Any questions, any comments, anything any ideas that you got for uh, maybe some upcoming content, um, let us know all about that. We can hoard gmail.com. If you really like what we're doing here, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash we can horror. We have uh, tiers that start at $1 uh, and go up from there uh, with matching with content, different content at each level. Uh, if you want to go ahead and help us out, we're, we're struggling here in quarantine with you, but uh uh, even a dollar helps us bring this stuff to you. If not, hey, it's cool. If you want to go on there, we, you can catch our bloodbath on there and our after dark or bloodbath when we put two horror icons against each other and our after dark where we sit down and talk to our special guests a little bit more intimately uh, and in depth about the industry. Uh, check out our Facebook and our Twitter uh, for daily splatter. It's going to be facebook.com slash weekend horror, Twitter at weekend horror. Daily splatter is a little bit of horror history every day, straight to your feed. You can interact with us on those posts as well. We love to hear from you. Uh, we also have our YouTube channel up and running. YouTube, obviously, we can horror. Where you can catch our uh, catch our episodes there and also interact with us in the comment section. We'll be all over all that. We're not doing anything here. I know uh, a couple of us have been quarantined here and there, so we're uh, we're around. And it sounds like we're going to be around a little bit more often now since Texas is now going back into quarantine. So way to go. Hit us up. I'm Alex. I'm JL. I'm Eugene. We will see you next week. And as always, stay scared.